Hey everybody, you're listening to the Jimmy's Table podcast, jimmystable.com. I'm your host, Jimmy Humphrey, where I like to have conversations about faith, life, culture, and sometimes food. Today is episode number 30, where I want to talk about how Bernie Sanders is trying to resurrect Jimmy Hoffa. Jimmy Hoffa, as you probably already know, went missing, quote unquote, (laughs) on July 30th, 1975. Jimmy Hoffa was a very famous Teamster union leader who caused the organization uh, to grow into the largest organized labor force that the American marketplace had ever seen during his lifetime. Uh, Lots of theories about what happened to Jimmy Hoffa. Nobody really knows, Uh, but most people are pretty much convinced because of some of his kind of organized crime uh, that he was also into that uh, Jimmy Hoffa was uh, swimming with the fishies or took a nice acid bath somewhere because uh, nobody has seen Jimmy Hoffa since July 30th, 1975. Uh, and there have been some, you know, alleged mafia deathbed confessions of people claiming uh, to be the murderer of Jimmy Hoffa or that Jimmy Hoffa, they buried him in a certain location and all that sort of stuff. Uh, nobody really knows, and people have, I think, for the most part, uh, except for some conspiracy theorist folks, given up trying to find what happened to Jimmy Hoffa, but it makes a fascinating story. Uh, and it's in light of Jimmy Hoffa that I kind of want to throw some uh, throw some shade, <laughs> if I might, on uh, Bernie Sanders. Because, you know, Bernie Sanders, I've never heard him say it, I've, uh, much I've heard him speak. I've never heard him speak personally about Jimmy Hoffa, but you know, there's this kind of love affair that uh, Bernie Sanders has with the uh, Jimmy Hoffa age. Bernie Sanders, big, 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 big time union supporter, loves trade unions, and he laments that uh, American society has by and large kind of rejected labor unions. Uh, The decline of labor unions has been significant since the time of Jimmy Hoffa and a very, 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 very small percentage of the workforce today is uh, existing under the organized labor of various uh, labor unions like the Teamsters. Um, But, you know, it's my kind of joke that I like to joke that uh, Bernie Sanders would very much like to resurrect Jimmy Hoffa in spite of his long being dead and disappeared. Um, and as Donald Trump got elected on the promise that he'd make a, make America great again, uh, Bernie Sanders has can, been kind of beating the same sort of drum. Um, and while nobody exactly knows what uh, period of time Donald Trump thinks would be in America's history to make America great again, we can be pretty sure that uh, Bernie Sanders kind of beating the same drum believes the 1950s in which individuals like Jimmy Hoffa came to fame and power, um, that, that period in which organized labor was being made great, that uh, Bernie Sanders would like to see a resurrection of that. He'd like to make labor great again, and maybe not personally Jimmy Hoffa, uh, but he would definitely like to resurrect the spirit and ideals and mindsets behind the world that existed during the time of Jimmy Hoffa minus, you know, segregation and racist sort of stuff. 
But according to politicians, you know, like Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren, we're living in a time in which great labor unions are needed again and we need to resurrect such people because times are hard and America has a disastrous economy that crushes the everyday folks like you and me who live on Main Street uh, and who get squished and trampled upon and have their rights violated by the uber-wealthy, the 1%. Um, and that because of this, this uh, great... Uh, you know, trampling of the everyday American by global elitist, uh, according to Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren types, the economy needs to be pretty much completely overhauled and replaced um, because things are not only bad now, but they're getting ready to be disastrous and just totally fall off a cliff. In other words, their motto is, the sky is falling, the sky is falling, chicken little, the sky is falling <laughs> and because of their motto that the sky is falling there's this belief that you know not only things are bleak um but because they're so bleak we have to push for these massive changes and this overhaul uh we need a world without billionaires we need to redistribute and siphon off all their wealth and redistribute it to the masses so we can afford Programs like Medicare for All, free college tuition, free child care, guaranteed jobs with guaranteed living wages, and a host of other promises that individuals like Sanders and Elizabeth Warren believe their government will be able to give people and that the people deserve because the people have been exploited and they've been taken advantage of and uh, the ruling class has done nothing but trample on everyday Americans uh, leaving them poor, destitute, and on utter life support. But I gotta ask, are things really as bleak and awful as individuals like Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren make the world to sound? Do we really need to raise Jimmy Hoffa from the dead? Do we really need to overhaul the current economic system and implement the democratic socialist utopia that they dream of? Or are more reasonable, smaller, moderate measures really the answer to uh, our problems? In today's podcast, we're going to look at all this because I want to look at some of the, the areas that I believe I've identified as uh, kind of economic challenges facing Main Street America and issues that you'll hear uh, Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren type individuals kind of uh, beat their drum over. Uh, but at the same time, I would like to think critically about the points uh, that they make and offer some sort of, uh, I think, constructive criticism to maybe make you see that things are not as terrible as they would have you to believe in their quest for power and uh, becoming the next president of the United States. So one area that uh, Warren and Sanders have that's a uh, issue that I also think is something to seriously consider is the issue of personal debt. According to statistics, and you can see these statistics at jimmystable.com, episode 30, the show notes. Um, you can also see them in the links if you're on Apple and uh, other um, podcast 
platforms in which you can see notes. I have links to the res uh, to a lot of charts and stats and graphs and all sorts of fun stuff. I highly encourage you to check out the show notes, jimmystable.com episode 30, uh, where you can get all that information and all the links and all, to all the pictures and all the graphs that make these things a little more clear. However, <laughs> according to statistics, uh, American consumer debt is at an all-time high, and it is now at higher levels than the Great Recession and the housing crisis of 2008. Household debt in America is currently at a total of $13.54 trillion. That's trillion with a T, folks. While the total housing debt, however, is lower than pre-crisis levels on an account of about $9.1 trillion in total household mortgage debt, and that includes home equity lines of credit, um, much of the increase in debt um, over the past few years since the housing crisis of 2008 has been primarily driven by that of student loans, of which we will talk about more later, um, which accounts for about $1.46 trillion. And additionally, there has been growing an increase in credit card and auto debt levels. Um, than in prior years. And specifically with auto loan debt, uh, you're starting to see auto loans that are beyond five years, but they're getting to six, seven, eight. And I think I've even heard rumors of a nine-year auto loan. So, you know, people are starting to uh, have to kind of, you know, it, it appears with the level of debt that they're taking on that people are kind of having a hard time. Uh, they're needing to use more credit cards to get by and their auto loans are being stretched at higher levels and deeper levels than ever before. However, it appears in spite of the increased debt that Americans are taking on, um, and in spite of it being at record high levels, Americans are successfully managing their debt levels well. As, according to data, only 1.1% of mortgages are currently more than 90 days delinquent. Um, and as somebody who, you know, once had time had a living at a big bad bank, uh, doing default mortgage servicing and loan modifications, uh, I know that percentage during the peak of the housing crisis was like well over four and five and six percent. Uh, so put that in perspective. Um, but according to data, um, at the end of 2018 though, in light of the increased amount of debt that Americans have taken on. Only roughly 755,000 bankruptcy filings have taken place in America. Um, and 755,000 might sound like a lot, but again, to put it in perspective, you have to look at it in light of history. And 755,000 bankruptcy filings in, Mer in America represents a continued year-over-year -year decline in bankruptcy filings since 2005 in which there were over 2 million people who declared bankruptcy. However, since 2005, annual bankruptcy filings have been falling to historic lows. So with America, if you do the math, having an adult population of roughly 210 million people, that means in 2018, only 0.36% of the adult population declared bankruptcy. Such means that over 99% of Americans 
are making their monthly debt payments. So things might be a little tight. Debt levels might be a little high. But in spite of all the challenges we face when it comes to our debt and our various forms of debt, which I'll continue to break down in uh, the next few minutes in this podcast, at the end of the day, over 99% of Americans are successfully managing their debts and their expenses. And yes, there's definitely areas where people are defaulting. And we'll get more into that in a little bit. But overall, things are pretty good when you consider that back in 2005, over 1% of the population was uh, filing for bankruptcy. <laughs> so keep that in mind as, we, as you listen to Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren tell you about how bad things are on Main Street. Next, medical expenses. Medical expenses are increasing. Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren would have you to believe, however, that there is a health care crisis in America. And you hear it all over the news. We are having, people are dying in the streets. Healthcare is so poor in America that we're practically a third world nation simply because we don't have a Scandinavian or Canadian based social welfare program for people with health care um, or for people who lack health care. Um, and it certainly seems that way and sounds that way on the surface. According to government statistics as of 2017, annual medical expenses in the United States totaled a whopping $3.5 trillion. That's roughly $10,000 a person. That's a pretty heavy load. Such And such represents a continued year-after-year year increase for such uh, quite some time. <laughs> and that represents America's, that re the healthcare cost, $3.5 trillion, represents a roughly 17% of America's gross domestic, gross domestic product. If you don't know what that is, that's basically all the money America makes as an economy. So that represents 17%. That's huge. <laughs> um, and according to data, about 66.5% of all bankruptcies every year are in part due to medical expenses. Yet, according to government statistics, and this is a big thing I would like to drive home that we really need to consider when we're talking about this $3.5 trillion um, amount that America racks up in annual medical expenses. According to government statistics, however, only about 10% of America's annual medical expenses, which is $365.5 billion, are actually paid out of pocket by Americans. The rest is paid through insurance, Medicare, Medicaid, and our employers. That means that though the average medical expenses per American is roughly $10,000 per year, the actual annual out-of-pocket expenses is roughly only $1,000 per person. And that's, uh, you know, 
Nothing to sneeze at, for sure. $1,000 is real money to me. I don't know about you. However, $1,000 is much smaller than the $10,000 statistic that is often uh, associated with everybody's personal medical expenses. And when you further break it down, you'll discover that 5% of the population accounts for 50% of all medical expenses according to statistics. And again, these links, when I say according to statistics, check out the links in the show notes. Whereas the bottom 50% of the population accounts for only 3% of all medical expenses. And the lower 50%, the average annual healthcare expenses amounted to only $276 a year. And of these expenses, 50% of all medical expenses were generated by those over 55 years of age. As managing the health care of an aging population becomes increasingly expensive, especially not only as people live longer, but heroic levels of health care service are provided to people in the later years of their life. Uh, in order to extend their life even longer than, you know, has previously been experienced in the history of human beings. Um, So, in spite of all of our growing medical expenses, the truth is, the truth is that Americans overall are affording their health care cost. In spite of the 66.5% of bankruptcies included in medical expenses statistics, Uh, Bankruptcy in America is in sharp decline with only $755,000, or I'm sorry, only 755,000 people rather, (laughs) I misspoke, sorry, only 755,000 people of the population declaring bankruptcy each year. So that means of the 755,000 people declaring bankruptcy each year, if 66.5% of the people are doing it because of related medical expenses. That means roughly 500,000 people declare bankruptcy last year due to medical expenses. Or, to put it in perspective, roughly 0.23% of the adult population. And don't get me wrong. We need to be concerned about the growing level of health care expenses in America. Especially for people living on the margins. But in spite of what... Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren and others are telling you, this does not, in my opinion, justify overhauling the American healthcare system and declaring that there is some sort of crisis going on with our current system. Because the truth is, as many people fall through the cracks and don't have adequate healthcare and die as a result of not having adequate healthcare, The truth is an extremely, extremely small percentage of our overall population is generating America's annual health care expenses, while the rest of the population has very, very little medical expenses. And most expenses are generated by the elderly, and only a very small percentage of the population cannot afford health care. So anyone who says otherwise, anybody tells you there's a crisis in healthcare, I'm just going to put it straight. They're either misinformed 
they misunderstand the issue and aren't looking at all the data possible, or they're just outright lying to you. The truth is, most people can afford their out-of-pocket medical expenses, and for the vast majority of out-of-pocket expenses that people have to pay, doctor offices are more than willing to negotiate affordable monthly payment plans, often at 0% interest and for very generous terms. Now, of course, don't get me wrong. There are people who are suffering under our current system. There are people who are literally dying because they cannot get the care they need or they're foregoing care because they're concerned that the care is going to be too expensive. So they're not taking all their medicines or they're not getting all the recommended procedures that they need done in order to improve their life. So let's not forget about those people, folks. Those are very real people. And even if the percentage is well under 1%, the fact of the matter is those are real people who are suffering. And I believe those people need to have something uh, done on their behalf, whether that is a government function or a private function, that's debatable. And that would be a great debate to have and discussion to have. However, I believe the notion that Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren are peddling, that we need to have a complete overhaul of our medical system so that we can have Medicare for all or universal health care or whatever you want to call it, such is simply a fabrication and is simply not what is happening in reality for 99% of America's population. And that's just a fact. And that's just truth, folks. That's just true. As expensive as medical expenses can be, and I, I should know, I just had you know, nearly $10,000 worth of medical expenses racked up as a result of uh, breaking my leg recently <laughs> with, you know, all that happens with broken legs, cat, you know, CT scans, x-rays, multiple trips to doctors and specialists and surgery consults and prescription drugs and, you know, emergency room visit and all that fun stuff. You know, don't get me wrong. I know it's not cheap and I know it's not easy, but <laughs> things are not the crisis that some people would have you to believe. So don't believe them. Next, going to talk about the student loan debt crisis. Woohoo! <laughs> There's no doubt about it. Student loan debt continues to skyrocket in America. From 2009 to 2019, according to statistics, the amount of student loan debt has increased from $650 billion to $1.4 trillion. That is a 116% increase in only 10 years. That's huge. So, such is an issue, I believe, that needs serious reform as tuition costs definitely continue to soar both in public and private colleges and universities. The average student debt a person carries right now, according to Experian, is about $35,000 a year. And with the increasing amount of student debt and the increasing amount of tuition, 
Such concerns many about the ability of future generations to afford college tuition in the future, but also not only that, but to afford the major life necessities such as a home, car, and starting a family. And I can attest as somebody that is a mortgage professional that works at a big, big bad bank, there is definite concern that college tuition is impacting the ability of many first-time home buyers uh, get, just getting married and trying to start families you know, in their mid and late 20s. Uh, it's impacting their ability to buy and purchase a house, and it's delaying many the ability to purchase their first home um, by several years often, um, and even more than that in some instances. So there's definite room for concern here about the drag that our increasing student loan uh, amounts are having on our ability to consume other things and impact our economy in other ways. So I think that's an issue that definitely needs to be addressed. Yet, in spite of all the challenges associated with the growing cost of college, just under 5% of all student borrowers are delinquent on their loans. And there is a simple reason for this. As expensive as $35,000 in student debt is as a total amount, depending on the specifics of your terms, um, with your interest rates, your term, and the minimum payment allowed under your program, and the lender, and all that sort of stuff, uh, you know, the average monthly payment for somebody with $35,000 in student loans is probably going to be around $350 a month. And while that is by far nothing to sneeze at, such in the kind of grand scheme of things, if you were to put it in perspective, is about the equivalent of having a reasonably used car payment. And don't get me wrong, that is nothing to sneeze at. $35,000, um, you know, you could have a nice used Suburban for that. <laughs> or you could buy a brand new Toyota or Toyota Camry or Honda Accord and, you know, finance it for about that as well. Um, so nothing to sneeze at by any stretch of the imagination. I don't know anybody who wants a second car payment without having the advantage of being able to drive a car. Um, and while I believe that serious measures need to be taken uh, to keep the current cost of tuition lower... Uh, as the current trajectory over the next few decades is definitely an area of concern. I don't see how, in light of these statistics, that we need to be in a place where we're just across the board for giving $1.4 trillion in student loans. Um, especially in light of the fact that currently more than 95% of people with student loans are successfully making their monthly payments. It might suck to make those payments. It might be difficult to make those payments. And I know people who have very large student loan balances and who are making more than the $350 a month in payments. And I sit there and think, as somebody who doesn't have any student loan debt, um, even though I went to private college, thankfully my parents were able to uh, pay my way, as somebody who doesn't have any current student loan debt, I could not imagine having to pay out $350 a month. Uh, that would, you know, not, it wouldn't 
put me under by any stretch of the imagination, but it would definitely be some areas where I have to be like, well, you know, I'm going to have to make some lifestyle choices here. Uh, I might have to go out to eat a little less. might have to not buy so many tickets to hockey games, <laughs> you know, and uh, things like that. However, with that said, if making monthly payments on student loan debt becomes too much of an issue, besides other issues to address the surging cost of, of college tuition, instead of simply forgiving every one of their student loans, I think we should simply allow student loans to be discharged via bankruptcy like we used to prior to 2005 when legislation was passed that made it virtually impossible to eliminate student debt um, via bankruptcy. And that's not to say student debt can't be eliminated through bankruptcy today. It can be. But according to everything I've read on the issue, such is extremely rare and difficult to do. You have to show that the student loans themselves are the cause for the extreme financial distress that uh, you are under. And I think this is to be a preferred thing over that of simply forgiving everybody their $1.4 trillion in student loans because that way those who can truly not afford their loans, they can have them forgiven and discharged by bankruptcy just like we do with any other personal debt. But those who can continue to afford their monthly student loan payments and aren't defaulting and needing to declare bankruptcy and they can, can continue to make their payments like 95% of the population, then those people, since they have benefited most from their college education and since they made the choice to go to college and take on $35,000 in student loan debt in order to help finance what hopefully has been a good career, um, you know, maybe we should have them pay it back <laughs> if they can afford to do so, just like we do with everything else in this life. If it's your debt, if it's something you've personally taken upon yourself and agreed to pay, then, you know, maybe you should pay it. I'm just saying, and I say this as a guy, you know, who knows what it's like to have struggled uh, in their mid-20s and was a personal financial disaster in my mid-20s as somebody who, you know, had to declare bankruptcy in their mid-20s. Um, you know, I get it. Life is hard and sometimes you need a restart um, and you need to hit the restart button and you need to have your debts forgiven. Debt forgiveness is cool, you know, but if you have the ability to pay your debts, as I do now, then you should. So, next issue I'd like to address, America's national debt and budget deficit. Now, this is kind of a bigger issue, a more macro issue, and maybe doesn't immediately affect your everyday person on living on Main Street sort of thing. However, the chickens, folks, are going to come home to roost at some point, and this will begin to negatively impact individuals. As of, July, or as of June 2019, according to statistics, America's publicly held national debt is currently over $16 trillion. That equals about 77% of our gross domestic product as a nation. And while this isn't the highest level of debt to GDP ratio, 
in the history of America, with the highest rate being shortly after World War II, when it was 121%. (laughs) And it's definitely at a level that should give us pause for concern, as the debt-to-GDP ratio has doubled since the early 2000s, in which it was in the lower to mid 30% range. And with current budget deficit soaring at more than a trillion dollars a year, current projections over the next decade have the ratio of our GDP uh, to debt reaching over 100% again by 2028 and dramatically increasing according up to 144% by 2049. And this is all, uh, from my understanding, current um, budget uh, projections by the CBO, which is a government agency, nonpartisan government agency, which you know checks the uh, budget deficit and what it's going to be in the future. So while the United States is currently far from the worst offender when it comes to national debt levels, it currently only ranks at 43 out of 207 nations. Such skyrocketing debt projections question the sustainability of the United States and its ability to afford current government programs, let alone the ones that Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren envision in their democratic socialist utopia, as those programs will cost trillions of dollars more. And such means many federal government programs, even after all the tax increases that they want to implement, may have to, at the end of the day, be slashed, and such could impact Americans everywhere. And we've seen this in other nations at the end of the day who have had similar debt-to-GDP problems. And while no economist is for sure at what point our debt becomes unsustainable debt levels. Um, many believe we're getting somewhat near to that point. Um, and it is something I believe that we're going to have to ultimately put into check one day. And while in the meantime, we just, you know, spend and kick the can further down the road and let the next generation figure it out. And we're just like, oh, well, we're enjoying it now. And by the time this is a problem, we'll all be dead. So we don't care. That'll be the next generation's problem to figure out. Um, hopefully, you don't have such an opinion because such is kind of a uh, you know butthole kind of opinion to have. <laughs> so uh, you know, let's uh, let's make conservative financial principles great again. Uh, let's. I have no problem with taxes per se, but I do have problems with. Uh, soaring budget deficits and our ability to actually afford things. We can only pass the buck for so long. And just as it is in the world of personal finance, even though the government has a little more leeway because the government can always hit the print button, um, at the end of the day, you know, gravity is a law that nobody can escape, including the federal government. So they may eventually try to print our way out of the problem Um, but history has shown that not to be such a good idea. So let's not go down that dark road and pursuit of an overhaul of the American economy and pursuit of a socialist utopia, uh, in which we have all these freebies and giveaways and programs that the governments give to everybody and everybody everywhere, 
um, in the name of trying to make some sort of imagined equality um, because the truth is uh, such things will only end in disaster if we pursue, keep pursuing our current trajectories. So the next big and final issue that I think is needs to be addressed is that of wage growth. You've probably heard it said many, many times. I know Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren say it ad nauseum. But over the past 50 years, real wages of everyday Americans, working class Americans in our economy, um, has flatlined. Average hourly earnings are currently at $23.24 per hour. This is the same as it was in 1973 when adjusted for inflation and other factors that get adjusted for these things by economists. <laughs> so technically speaking, as of 50 years ago, as of 1973, uh, wages today command the same power that they did for 1973 wages. So you have Bernie Sanders coming and saying, listen, we are being screwed over by the 1%. They are taking all the wealth and they are leaving the main people on Main Street uh, living in the gutters and having all sorts of turmoil and all sorts of other bad stuff. <laughs> However, this statistic cited by Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren and others repeatedly is highly, 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 highly misleading. And, it, and at the end of the day, Liars figure, but figures never lie. And it pays to look closer at the actual data instead of simply listening to highly selective talking points extracted from such data. Um, because the perspective of flat wage growth, where they say, oh, wage growth has been stagnant for 50 years, and that's all because the 1% are exploiting the working class and all the wealth is remaining in the top and none of it's trickling down, um, you know, that perspective is based on a highly selective data. Um, so while it's true that since 1973, that our current wages today equal what they were in 1973, the truth of the matter is wages have not been flat. Let me say that again. Wages have not been flat. Yes, they've been flat since 1973, but after 1973, wages went sharply down until they hit their bottom in roughly 1990, when real wages in 1990 were only $19 an hour. However, 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 <laughs> real wages have consistently grown since 1990 from $19 an hour to the present 2324 or $23.24 average today. That, if you do the math, is a 22% improvement in the American worker's wage in less than 30 years. So while that's not a huge increase by any stretch of the imagination, the current trajectory that we have been on for the past 30 years has been upward and is currently upward. And Americans economic lives are improving. You can purchase 22% more now, today, in 2019, than you could in 1990. 
Wages are not stagnant like many would have you believe. And it's not just all the wealth of the, the nation is not just all going in the hands of a select few aristocrats who are scalping Americans alive and exploiting labor and all the fun stuff that Democrat socialists like to say. We are seeing real wage growth in Main Street America. Now, granted, it's not at the same rate as the one percenters are seeing it. They're definitely seeing, you know, a, a greater rate of wealth growth uh, compared to working Americans who receive wages. But, you know, the reason for that is simple. When you invest money in real estate and when you invest money in stock market and when you invest money in companies and start your own business, there is a very real good chance that your wages or your wealth will increase. The I think the current average of the stock market, depending on what you uh, pick right now, month, pretty much the average returns of the market year over year are anywhere from 8 to 11%, depending how you're calculating and who you're asking. So it's obvious that you know if your primary source of wealth and income is not in actual hourly wages like you know 90% of the population um but is from you know putting money in investments then your investments which grow at a greater rate than wages do will cause some income inequality um as a result of putting your money in investments that work for you while you're sleeping <laughs> or while you're running a company um, and that's very different than punching a clock somewhere and making money the good old-fashioned way. However, even with the d disparity between how the rich get richer, the fact of the matter is the poor are not getting poorer in America. Everybody in America is benefiting from the economy of the past 30 years. Now, every, you know, you could break it down further and see that differs depending on what income level strata you're at and that sort of thing. You know, people who are on the lower end of the spectrum definitely aren't benefiting as much as people, you know, making seventy-five dollars or $100,000. But the fact of the matter is, at the end of the day, the average American wage is increasing. Main Street is alive and well and is prospering in spite of what Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren say, that only the uber-rich are profiting from economic growth. That's simply not true. The rich might be profiting at a higher rate, no doubt about it, but Main Street America has increasingly been making more money every year for the past 30, and this has happened without the help of Jimmy Hoffa-type figures and labor unions and the small and diminishing role that they are playing in the American workforce. The truth of the matter is, they're not making, and I'm not saying this to slight labor unions. My dad worked under a labor union as an electrician uh, at a plant for his entire life. Uh, and he definitely benefited from labor unions. I have no problem with labor unions per se. So I'm not here to knock Jimmy Hoffa. Somebody already did that. Bipping bing. bing. <laughs> um, uh, good joke. Good Jimmy Hoffa joke. Um, so I'm not knocking Jimmy Hoffa. The mob already did that. Um, but, uh, you know, people are getting richer without the need of unions playing a place in the everyday lives of the American workforce. So we don't need to resurrect Jimmy Hoffa. We don't need to bring him back to life. We don't need to put him in every office and every you know, building in every labor place in the country. So rest in peace, Jimmy Hoffa. <laughs>
So my conclusions. America's economy is far from a perfect one. There are very real problems that we struggle with, and there are areas of very real concern. There are very real people out there. There are very real people out there who are struggling in very real and sometimes catastrophic ways. People need help, and they need them in very real ways. Um, but I don't believe the problems are as overblown as many popular presidential candidates would have you believe. In fact, many of them are outright lying about the extent of the problems our economy faces. And individuals like Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren are exploiting a lot of people with a narrative that is highly misleading in their own quest for power and glory. So, I believe, far from an entire overhaul being required to make our nation a better country economically, it would seem as if the only things that need to be done are to, to make modest gestures. And whether that is through public uh, government social safety nets and expanding you know, various welfare social programs, or through private uh, enterprises and charities and organizations. I believe in my heart of hearts when you really look at the stats and the data and drill down deeply that we, whatever we need to do in America, and there's a lot of room for debate about what we need to do, we need to do something far less dramatic than raising Jimmy Hoffa from the dead. So everybody, this has been Jimmy Humphrey, episode 30 of Jimmy's Table Podcast, jimmystable.com. I've been your host, Jimmy Humphrey. Email me, jimmy at jimmystable.com. Reach out to me on Facebook, on Twitter. Feel free to subscribe. Um, I'd love to hear from you. I'd uh, love to interact with you. Be sure to leave comments, reviews, all that sort of fun stuff. I love you. I thank you for listening. Uh, and I hope that whatever ideas that we can put forward about how to make America a better place, that we can do so from a perspective that is grounded in reality and facts and truth and actual hard data and not selective data at that. I don't claim to have all the answers, but I think we need to have better questions and better conversations and take a more realistic approach to solving these things than coming up with the melodramatic, nonsensical ramblings of, of individuals like Bernie Sanders and... Elizabeth Warren, because what they're peddling, as sincere as Bernie Sanders as I believe he probably is, um, what they're peddling simply is not true. And I'd love to show, I'd love you to show me otherwise if I'm wrong. <laughs> uh, so anyway, take care, everybody. God bless, and I hope you have a great day.